Hello and welcome to Hazelwood's Breaking News, the essential podcast for veterinary practice owners and managers. I'm your host, Suzanne Headington, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Rachel Vines. Hiya. Today we're going to be going through an update on selling to corporates, as there's been quite a lot of change in the market over the last few months. And so that is affecting the process if you want to sell to a corporate and are able to sell to a corporate. Um, So we're going to sort of have a chat through what the process is to start with and then also how that's sort of been affected by what's been going on with the Competition and Markets Authority, etc. So do you want to start, Rachel? (laughs) Yeah, so probably last couple of years, people will have heard of the CMA. We've seen it lots in the veterinary press, I'm sure. Um, CMA is basically the Competition and Markets Authority and they have been looking into some of the transactions that the corporate groups have done over the last couple of years. Yep. And basically they're looking into areas where the market penetration of a certain corporate group causes anti-competitive market in that area. Um, so it's basically affected the number of potential corporates that can buy your practice. So when most people come to us and they're initially wanting us to look at selling them, we would obviously do our normal process of looking at what they might be worth, so mm-hmm. assessing their valuation. Um, but a key part of that now is to have a look at the competition position in terms of where they're located, what groups they've got around them, and to kind of try to identify any groups that may not be able to bid for them, because um, that will obviously then affect you know, if you've got if you've got fewer bidders, then that could obviously impact on your marketability. Yeah, and also just again setting expectations, I suppose, for the sellers about what they're able to achieve in the open market because it has changed. But equally, we are still seeing pretty good valuations in the main. So it's just trying to make sure that everybody's aware of how things might play out and so there's no surprises as, as far as possible you can't mitigate everything clearly but <laughs> yeah and obviously all of this takes time as well so it's an extra yeah. layer to the initial part of work that you need to do and you know people obviously want to sort of they've decided they want to sell they want to yep. sort of get going with it but this you know the initial steps and especially looking at the CMA position is is such an important part because you need to know where you stand from that point of view yes so that you don't incur any problems down the line. Yeah, and again, don't incur a lot of cost for for no avail as well. So you want to make sure you've got something that can be proceedable. Yeah. Um, So basically doing your research on it, which obviously we do for our clients, but doing that research just helps, you know, helps the whole process. In terms of valuation, what are the corporates sort of looking for? What information do they generally want to see? Yeah, so the initial part would be to prepare an EBITDA calculation. So EBITDA stands for earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation. It's quite mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) It looks at the underlying position of profits if you took out of the equation how that business was financed Mm -hmm. and what um what depreciation rates it, it uses etc so it's kind of looking at the underlying cash position going forward also um, reflects the structure of the business as well doesn't it so yeah kind of equalizes everything between a partnership sole trader and company and puts it all on the same footing yeah that's right so for example um 
if you've got a company situation, then there's quite often a small salary going through. So that would get added back in the EBITDA calculation. And instead, you'd put in mm-hmm. a market rate salary for yeah. that um, for that vet. Um, other adjustments that we make are if there are any significant one-off costs, like if you've done some yeah. big repair work. And also potentially rent. Yes. So. If you're renting your premises from a third party, then a market rent will already be going through the profit and loss account. However, if the property is on the balance sheet or if, for example, it's owned by the owners of the company as well, um, quite often there's not a rent going through. And obviously the owners of the property will want a rent to be paid from the corporates. So (laughs) that needs to be factored in as well. So, yeah, I mean, the average EBITDA is around about 15% of turnover, um, just as a very rough guide. And sort of for a good practice, then we normally say around 20% and Mm -hmm. for very good, around about 25%. Okay. And obviously, if you're towards the higher end, then hopefully <laughs> that gives you a better chance of achieving a better price yeah. in the market. Yeah. yeah. So obviously, one of the things that we've seen in, in recent years is uh, staff costs have increased mm-hmm. across the board. Yeah. Um, you know, higher salaries have had to have been paid. So if your EBITDA has got quite low staff costs in it, then that can obviously be something that could get picked up. I guess it's whether it's sustainable at that level or um, we will often see practices where maybe the owners of the practice are working super hard or just super efficient um, Mm. actually and it's I suppose assessing for any valuation whether that's going to continue into the future and therefore actually would they need extra people to sort of take on some of the roles that maybe they've been doing because they own the business whereas Mm. if they don't own the business there's an element of why should I do that? <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, it's yeah, trying to make sure that we're kind of looking at everything as, as much as possible to, again, sort of set that expectation right, isn't it? Rather than yeah. having a, a high EBITDA that maybe people don't believe. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so so once you've got that EBITDA calculation, you would then give an indication of what a multiplier might be mm-hmm. on that EBITDA. So just, just for our clients' purposes. Just, yeah, just yeah. for our clients. So so we wouldn't tend to obviously disclose that um, figure to any of the corporates. That's just something that we talk yeah. about in terms of what you might achieve on sale. So the gross enterprise value is basically the result of that EBITDA times multiple. Mm-hmm. Gross enterprise value is goodwill plus fixed assets. And gross enterprise value tends to be used in the corporate offers um, because you need to look at what the makeup is of a practice. So for example, if you've got a practice that um, is profitable because it's got lots of equipment mm-hmm. um, that it's fully utilising, that will come to the same value as another practice that hasn't got quite the amount of yep. um, equipment, but they're generating their profit in a different way. So that's why the two elements are combined together to so that you know, you're not penalising one practice over another. I suppose it takes into account how recently you might have bought assets and things for as well. If yeah. you've got assets that you've only bought in the last few years, they are fit for the future. Whereas a practice that's had assets for a longer period of time won't have as big a proportion based on the assets, but they're probably generating a lot more profit. So yeah, yeah, so, so they don't necessarily go hand in hand, but there's an element. To that. Yeah, so essentially their goodwill part is is yeah. higher. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we normally talk to people and give them a range that they can expect and mm-hmm. that's become more and more difficult to do um, yeah. just with everything that's been going yes. on in the market. It will depend on you know how many potential buyers you've got, 
what strategy those buyers might have because they just seem to be changing you know fairly significantly yeah it's definitely become less predictable um i would say and one of the reasons why we do those sort of ranges really is to also help those that are selling have a kind of idea of what they might expect to um, achieve and also what the implications are of that from a tax point of view and the timings of when payments might come in etc so they can plan for it and again there's no point in going through the whole process if we think or whoever estimates the valuation thinks that actually there's only a, a finite amount that you're going to achieve but that's not enough for what you want to do in the future because you could carry on earning from the practice making profits from it for another few years before you sell so it's got to be worthwhile mm-hmm. but the only way you can assess that before going to the corporates is having that valuation done yeah and I think that, that's the key thing to do is basically to have a look and see what the valuations might be so what price you might get and then like you say what that equates to in terms of post-tax cash and yep. you know is that enough for you to invest and, and live yep. on or you might plan to work going forward but obviously a lot of the time you're not going to make the same money as you have been no. as an owner and then the other key thing to look at is the competition position so to basically have a look and see who your potential buyers might be yeah and then to have the conversation with them that to check that in terms of what their parameters and what they're looking at from a CMA perspective, that they are potential runners before you yeah. do any sort of detailed work. Yeah. And then once once you've got the valuation, it is then obviously approaching the, and you've done all that research, you, you kind of know who you want to approach. Um, and I think it's really important that people then talk to the corporates to make sure that they have those discussions about actually, how are you going to help me? What What's in it for me? Because actually, okay, there's obviously the money side, you know, if selling your practice that's clearly what's in it but but also you know a lot of our clients that we talk to really want to make sure that they're doing best for the team as well and that they're sort of protecting their future as much as possible and that's really important isn't it for yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the things that we do for our clients is we put together what we call an information memorandum, which is kind of, I suppose it's kind of like a prospectus. Yeah. And that document basically sets out the EBITDA calculations that we've put forward. Um, it also sets out background history about the practice numbers of employees, where you're based, what the property situation is, lots and lots of information in there, which we can then provide to the corporates um, after they signed confidentiality agreement. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, that then gives the corporates a lot of what they need to assess whether that practice is one that they want to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is very important for the two sides to to meet yeah. ideally face-to-face and to talk about each of their businesses yes. um, because I think a lot of the corporates would say that you know they're looking to sort of form a kind of partnership with with practice yeah. that they're they're buying and like you say the owners will quite often want to make sure that their staff are going to be very well looked after in the future yeah I think that's a very important step yeah and ultimately the owners may well be working post sale for a period of time so they will become employees so they it's kind of a, not quite a job interview but it's you know it's the other way around really but it's that kind of process isn't it to just make sure it's a good fit um for everybody in that yeah so yeah so the offers will vary from group to group yeah um sometimes you might get an amount that's payable all up front sometimes you might get an element that's deferred or yeah. um on some kind of earn out 
So, um, so yeah, it's obviously important to sort of compare those offers from that point of view. So once we've maybe had all those and we've got an offer that we've accepted from a corporate, we're then kind of into all the legal process. Yeah. But we're finding that's changed slightly now, aren't we, in terms of maybe the order of events within that period a little bit? Yeah, on the, on the legal side, um, then normally, you know, you would at that point instruct a solicitor. Mm-hmm. And once you've accepted the offer, then sometimes a heads of terms is, is drafted, which just yeah. acts as a document to say these are all the key terms that we've agreed and the price, etc. And then that is then used as a basis to form those legal documents. But I think also sort of alongside that, we're finding some of the corporates are maybe looking into now they're able to get a bit more information, just reassessing their positions a bit as well to make sure that they're really comfortable with the practice and where it is from the competition point of view. Because we, we've sort of seen a bit of a change of the order of events, whereas, you know, even 18 months ago, we were still pretty much predominantly, once you get into this legal process, you get to exchange and complete on the same day and mm. that's it. Mm. whereas we are seeing a little bit more now this sort of split exchange and completion happening yeah so some groups are looking to real legal documents and then exchange Mm -hmm. then going for approval to the cma before they then complete yeah um which is why they're doing a lot more work up front to sort of assess all that isn't it i think to make sure that everyone's really comfortable with it because no one wants to incur a load of cost and then find they can't actually complete (laughs) it's a lot of a lot of time uh, and effort goes into it all so um i mean typically what sort of time frames do you think we're seeing from sort of well i guess even going right back to the start from Mm. thinking about selling and approaching the corporates to a completion yeah i mean the time frames (laughs) have just been blown really wide now so we used to say from agreeing a deal to completion Mm -hmm. that can be done within three months um and that is kind of ish still doable depending on you know how complicated the transaction is um i'd probably say that is now typically six months yeah um and i would say that between somebody actually coming to us saying we want to sell to actually completion could even be a year yeah um it really is taking that long yeah so that's why it's important to kind of think about these things early on yeah and i think a lot of that comes from to a point um i suppose each side doing their own um and hesitate to use the words due diligence because I don't mean in the sense of the legal and financial bit that happens with the process, but just their due diligence on the practice and, and mm. the corporate vice versa to make sure it's right. But also then how quickly people respond to queries, how quickly legal documents are turned around and all that kind of thing. And because you're always dealing with people and quite a few different people, mm. that invariably means timeframes get stretched, you know, and even though, you know, there are lots of intentions to complete things within maybe six to eight weeks, it doesn't always always work like that and so it's just kind of again setting people's expectations about when they need to start thinking about this um, and really thinking about it early enough so they can go into it with an expectation of when things might complete and what work's involved as well because it is quite an onerous process isn't it yeah definitely and I think that initial piece around sort of actually establishing who your potential buyers are mm-hmm. is is probably one of the most sort of frustrating parts of it because that yeah. can seem to take such a long time and actually that's just the way that it is. Yeah. Um, you can't sort of push water uphill, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately. 
<laughs> no, but actually, once you get, as you say, once you get to agreement, it, it can be quite a smooth process. And yeah. certainly if you've just been through your practice inspections and things like that, then invariably people will have all their documentation up to date, which is a massive part of the legal side, particularly. And if you've done all of that, then that will go a lot smoother. But it's also having access to that information and some practice owners might not have access or direct access to that very mm. easily so you know i've heard stories of people going in, in under the cover of darkness with torches going looking through drawers to find legal contracts or yeah. <laughs> you know insurance documents or whatever because they don't want the team finding out about it so it's quite difficult to keep all that confidential for quite a long period yeah. of time isn't it and that can yeah. be quite stressful it is really stressful i think that's the right word and i think especially given what i've just said about time frames it can be quite mm. stressful for a long period of time and that obviously takes its toll yeah. on people um so the more sort of initial work you can have done the more yeah, more organized sort of, you yeah be, the more organized you are up front then the better really because then hopefully that means that you won't any have anything come up that's unexpected yeah um because those are always the times when things get delayed then because nobody knows how to quite to react yeah. to it yeah and the other thing we're talking about delays sounds a bit bit of a negative thing but you know the other thing that does tend to cause issues sometimes is if there's a bit of property involved which maybe isn't owned by the sellers so there's third party landlords involved yeah. um, you're just adding another solicitor and another person into the mix aren't you which... yeah and that's always a really difficult one because you don't want to give anybody the heads up before you've got anything no. kind of agreed so you kind of just have to wait and then disclose hope. it <laughs> disclose it at the right time and just hope that yeah their solicitor yeah. is one that is proactive yeah um, yeah if you've got property with third parties that are potentially not commercial third parties as such but they're sort of previous owners or something like that then that can sometimes take a while to get sorted yeah we talked um earlier about obviously doing the valuations and sort of getting things lined up to provide expectations we touched a little bit on about the structure of the offer but i think understanding exactly how the offer is structured and actually what that means from a tax point of view as well and how Mm -hmm. that might be treated yeah is is quite important yeah so i suppose we're kind of assuming this is a company yeah so yeah you obviously have your gross enterprise value and then you'll have your net assets on top of that as well so Mm -hmm. obviously you don't get paid for fixed assets twice so it's all of your kind of current assets less all of your other liabilities so your stock debtors cash on the balance sheet less you know your VAT payments and PAYE and all that kind of thing yeah 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 so you tend to get paid an initial amount up front and that will be taxable under capital gains tax your deferred elements are also capital treatment as well and, and the net assets part of it so all of it is a capital gain as such it doesn't matter so much when the payments are actually received it's more about how it's structured so even though you don't receive everything on day one you would tend to be taxed on everything that you do eventually received as if you'd received it on day one yeah um so if it's all I'd... treated as consideration then that would be fine yeah so where you have an element that is contingent then as long as you know and have a sort of realistic expectation of what that payment is mm-hmm then you would tend to include that in your upfront capital gains tax calculation. Yeah. So it's important to note that um, there is obviously the business asset disposal relief um, yeah. limit. There's a lifetime limit of £1 million currently. So if the proceeds that you're receiving are more than that, then you're going to be paying 20% on some of that and 10% on that first million pounds. Um, and as I said, that is a lifetime amount. So if you've previously used some of that allowance, then that gets deducted from the million yeah. pound allowance that you've got there. 
And I guess the timing of the sale to a point determines how long you need to keep that cash set aside. (laughs) You know, if you sell at the start of a tax year, then you've almost got not quite two years, but sort of, you know, 20 months or 18 months or so to before you actually have to pay that tax. Whereas if you sell towards the end of a tax year, you actually got less than a year to keep it aside. So, but the important thing is knowing how much that's going to be. You've got Don't to get spent. Yeah, definitely. Um, but again, we sort all that lot out for our clients. So it's just making sure people are aware that that's something that they ought to consider because it would be quite easy to ignore that part and think it's further down the line. Yeah. Especially if you've got deferred income actually or deferred payments coming in. Sometimes people rely on those for paying their tax in the future. And actually, mm. if things don't go so well for whatever reason, then you could end up in a bit of a pickle not being able to you know fund that tax so um, again planning and setting aside is really important I think on that yeah and also kind of where where you're going to put that money as well and what you're going to do with your with your completion monies yes and so I think a lot of people think you know they'll probably want to repay some debt for example yeah might want to just clear down any debt that they have and then they've got this this chunk of money left and lots of people kind of think, oh, well, I'll, yeah, I'll get round to investing that. Or at some point, I'll speak to a financial advisor and, yeah. you know, I'll get that invested. It's quite easy for that to kind of sit in a, yeah. sit somewhere um, for a period of time. So it's just useful to be aware of the um, the 85K government-backed uh, yeah. guarantee amount. So basically, that means that every banking group will guarantee your sort of savings mm-hmm. up to 85,000 per banking group. So for a lot of people, that proceeds will be more than that. Yeah. So what we normally recommend is that they put them in some kind of national savings and investments account because that doesn't have that limit. Yeah. Um, so if anything happens, then it's secure until you've decided you know, where what you you're actually going to gonna do with it. it. Yeah. yeah. So it's just sort of temporary holding place really yeah. isn't it and yeah. and and also bearing in mind that from a inheritance tax point of view you've now you've got a far higher exposure now because mm. when you own shares in the business or owned a partnership it was protected you know it's outside of your estate effectively yeah. for that purpose but now you've got a load of cash you're now potentially open to inheritance tax yeah. you know if the worst happens so you want to make sure you're doing something with it and getting that appropriate advice from a financial advisor yeah um, which Hazelwoods have you know several that we can put people's way if they want to have those discussions so um but it, it's definitely a key area and one as you say i think people don't always think about straight away and and then time just sort of disappears yeah <laughs> um so you know want to make the most of it so i think that sort of takes us through most of the process for selling to a corporate and obviously picking up on some of the Slight changes that have happened, mostly driven because of the CMA, but also because the market is more corporate orientated now. So I suppose they can be a bit more picky and choosy about which practices Mm. they want. So making sure that you've planned ahead, got organised, I think are probably the kind of key points and, and getting a good advisor to talk you through the whole process. Yeah, I think you're right. It's basically, yeah, thinking about these things early on and taking appropriate advice. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us today. As ever, if you have any questions on anything we have discussed, please get in touch with a member of our team and you can find all the contact details on our website, www.hazelwoods.co.uk. 